The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. I give you fair warning this morning. It appears that someone has stolen my clock. That's uh, okay, I've got a watch. I mean, they're being offered up all over the room right now. <clears throat> I wonder if it's the same person who had set it ahead 10 minutes last, last week. I don't know. No fear, I do have a watch. I just have to remember to look at it. I want to go back this morning to Luke 8, 1 through 15, that we looked at last week, the parable of the soils. And I want to go back to that text this morning, and uh, I want to spend some more time really with it. There are two reasons that I want to come back to it. Uh, One is I want to spend some time dealing with some of the theological implications of the parable. Uh, It's been fun this week. I've had some some interesting and encouraging and enjoyable uh, conversations with folks as they were sort of processing the implications of the parable of the soils this week after we talked about it last week. And, uh, and, and there were so many things that we didn't get to last week as far as the theological implications uh, and applications of this particular parable. I, I want to go back to it and address those things and, uh, and certainly address some of the questions that came in my direction this week, hopefully with some level of skill this morning. So we'll go back to the parable of the sower. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'll summarize it in just a few moments. <clears throat> and then we'll just sort of pick up uh, at the end of the parable. Uh, with verse 15, and, uh, and just sort of jump off from there. But I was reading something this week about uh, Christian theologian and thinker and writer Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you've heard of Francis Schaeffer, just a remarkable thinker, writer, great encourager to the church, wonderful uh, teacher. Uh, if you get a hold to some of his books, they're good books to get a hold to and good books to read. But I was reading a bit of a, of a biography of, of Schaefer this past week, and in this sort of biographical essay, there was a section about his life that I had not previously known about. It was a, a time in which Francis Schaefer went through a very deep and real spiritual crisis, uh, a season in which he went back and questioned his own faith, whether or not he was even a Christian. And the, the biographer wrote about it this way, and it's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you just because... It leads us somewhere this morning. The author writes, Going back many years uh, to Schaefer's time in college and later in seminary, Francis and his wife Edith were bothered by the lack of love shown between Christians, especially where there was any disagreement. At that time, Francis and Edith had wrestled with the question, how could people stand for God's holiness and the purity of doctrine in the church and in one's personal life, and yet not have it turn out to be harsh and ugly. By 1951, Schaefer felt he had seen so much that was harsh and ugly within the church that he was not sure he could, in honesty, be a Christian any longer. He saw so much that was negative, so much that that defined itself primarily in terms of what it was against. He saw so much infighting within circles of which he was a part, in his own denomination and across large segments of the evangelical community, 
He saw men struggling for power and using unscrupulous methods to gain or maintain control and positions of influence. He saw church courts, which were so governed by secret meetings and prior agreements and so manipulated in underhanded ways by men who were so absolutely confident that they were right and were serving the Lord better than anyone else. That presbytery and that synod gatherings seemed sometimes more like the worst of political shady dealings and movements to wrest control by any means at hand. He began to despair of whether Christianity could indeed even be true. And reflecting on his embattled mentality and the political intrigues that came with it, Schaefer began to wonder what he and the other separatists, those that thought they were uh, consumed with zeal for God's word and God's honor, were truly for. And what affirmations there were to set alongside all the negations. Where was the passion for evangelism that fills the pages of the New Testament? Where was the devotional literature expressing love for the Lord? Where were the hymns that would uh, demonstrate that the imagination and the heart were being touched by God's truth along with the mind? Where were the supernaturally transformed, transformed lives of people who were being changed by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit? Where was love for fellow believers and for one's unbelieving neighbors that would show to the world that the Father sent the Son for our salvation? Schaefer was not only dissatisfied within the circles in which he was a part, he said, quote, Edith, I feel really torn to pieces by the lack of reality, the lack of seeing the results of uh, the Bible talks about, which should be seen in the Lord's people. He goes on to say, I'm not only talking about people I'm working with, but I'm not satisfied with myself. It seems that the only honest thing to do is to rethink, re-examine the whole matter of Christianity. Is it true? I need to go back to my agnosticism and start at the beginning. Well, we know where that start at the beginning led for Schaefer. He became a remarkable influencer for the gospel for the remainder of his ministry. That rethinking and that restart led him right back to where he had begun with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it transformed his heart and his life. The reason that that's so stuck in my mind is because Schaefer's journey stands in stark contrast to the journey of two men that I introduced to you last week, Bill Bradley and Joshua Harris. Both men who, like Schaefer, reevaluated their life and reevaluated their faith and, and sort of deconstructed back to the very beginnings and foundations of what they believed. But the result in their lives was drastically different. The two men we talked about last week, at the end of that process, walked away from Christ. Francis Schaefer and his deconstruction and his doubts led him right back to the Lord Jesus Christ with more confidence than ever. What's the difference between Bill Bradley, Joshua Harris, and Francis Schaeffer? The parable of the soils, I believe, answers the question. Francis Schaeffer possessed a heart that was described by, by Luke here, by Jesus, recorded by Luke, as good soil. Whereas the other men were either the rocky or the thorny soil. 
The parable of the sower is a story that Jesus told. He told a, a crowd of, of people who had gathered, these people who had been following him for some time, and the crowds had grown tremendously, and they were crushing in on him. Uh, they, people had come from all over the place to see him do miracles, to hear him teach novel teachings, to, 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 to hear the new, the faddish, the cool. Everybody's talking about it. We all need to go see it. Jesus, understanding that so many of them had come with wrong motives and impure hearts, that he chooses on this particular day to teach a different way. And his teaching consisted of him pushing out in a boat and while all the people are gathered on the, store, on the shore and saying, listen up folks, I've got a message to deliver. Here's a story I want to tell you. There was a sower who went out into a field and, and he was sowing his seed and his seed fell. Some of it on the pathway, the road, and some of it fell in thorny soil and some of it fell in rocky soil and then some of it fell on good soil. The stuff that fell on the road, the birds picked it up and it didn't take root, it was gone. It was bird food. Some fell in the, the rocky soil, and, it, and it, it, at first it took root and it began to grow, and it looked like it was going to go somewhere. But before long, the heat comes down and, and withers it away because its roots aren't deep enough to get to the water and sustain life. And then some of it fell in the rocky soil, and, and it looked at, initially it took root, and it looked like it was going to be great and be the real thing. But, but very quickly, the weeds grew up around it and choked out its life, and it died. And then some of it fell on good soil, and it, it went into the soil, and it took root, and it began to grow up, and it bore fruit, and it survived. End of story. And most of the people were standing around going, what in the world is he talking about? That doesn't sound fantastic. That doesn't sound novel. That sounds pretty mundane and ordinary. And apparently that was the end of the message. And he apparently goes about his merry way. And the crowds began to disperse at that point because there was nothing impressive about that story on the surface. His disciples, we read in Luke chapter 8, are curious as to what in the world he's doing. And so they come alongside him and pull him off afterward to say, Jesus, what is going on with the story? Why are you teaching like this? And what does it mean? And he goes on to explain to, him, to them what it means. He says it's a, it's a story that has meaning, spiritual significance. The sower is, represents anybody who's, who's, who's spreading that gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And everywhere that that seed of the gospel lands, it, it does something, something happens to it. But a lot of people who hear it are like that seed that falls on their, their, their heart is like the, 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 the hard-packed roadway. The, the, the gospel never even penetrates. It just sits on the surface. They, don't, they, just, they just refuse it offhand, and the Satan plucks it away, and they never think about it again. It goes no further than that. Some people receive it with joy initially, and it looks like they believed, and it looks like that they have embraced it fully in their hearts, and they begin to, to grow up, and it looks to be the real thing. But something happens. External pressure comes, and trouble comes, and, and trials come, and hardships come. And it burns away whatever little life was there. And that seed withers away and dies. They walk away. And they don't come back. And then there's other hearts that are like that thorny soil where initially it looks like they believe and it looks like everything is good and they look like they're a part of the church and they look like they, they, they begin to, to do things that people do when they become part of the kingdom. But eventually something else happens. It's not trials and temptations and, and pressure from the outside, but it's temptations and lust from the inside that begin to crowd out any room for that seed. 
and it's the love for wealth and pleasure and the things of the world that choke out any life for the gospel and they walk away and they don't return but then there are always those that are the good soil the, 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 the truth plants in their hearts and it, it digs deep roots and it grows up and it endures and it bears fruit over the long haul it's a story that on the surface seems silly but at the bottom of it all is very very serious a very serious story and the two main implications of the whole thing are this not everyone who appears to be a genuine Christian is a genuine Christian that's a clear implication of the story because at least initially thorny soil and rocky soil and good soil for a season all look exactly alike for a while but appearances can be deceiving and the second implication is that this what, what marks out a genuine Christian at least by this particular story are two things the bearing of spiritual fruit and endurance over time people who are genuine believers are people whose lives begin to bear fruit that the gospel has taken root in their heart and it shows up in the way that they live in both their attitudes and their behaviors and their faith when it goes through trials and when it goes through temptations and when hardship and pressure comes from the outside and when temptations rise up from the inside and they wrestle through these things they come out on the other side with a faith that's intact those things don't drive them away from God they drive them to him like Francis Schaeffer. I want to take our time this morning to look at those two issues. The bearing of fruit and endurance of faith. Luke 8.15 is where we see this in this particular parable. It's the very end. And then in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, as we look through this issue of fruit-bearing and endurance this morning as marks of true believers, I'm going to draw from a lot of different places in Scripture. This is going to be a, a more theological message than what we would typically do. I'm going to try and bring a lot of streams together into a picture that sort of makes sense and answers some questions for you. In order to do that, I'm going to point you to a lot of different texts of Scriptures, and I'm going to speak fast. So buckle up and listen fast, because I don't have a clock. If you're writing and taking notes, listen, I'll make a, a, a study guide available for this afterwards so you don't have to feel the need to record every, your, I don't want your pen smoking this morning. Um, just listen and catch the thrust of, of what I want to share with you this morning. In Matthew's version of this particular parable, he says this in verse 22 of chapter 13. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. Quite similar, Matthew adds a detail that Luke doesn't include for this particular message. Luke just simply tells us that the, 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 the good heart, the good soil, when it hears the gospel, the gospel plants and it bears fruit with patience. Matthew includes the added note that he bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. And the point he's simply making, we'll come back to this, is that it, the fruit looks different in every believer. It's not the same from believer to believer. It's different. But the presence of fruit is the same. The amount of fruit 
differs. Now, just for definition's sake, what are we talking about here when we talk about fruit? We're talking about perceivable evidence of sanctification, perceivable evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This shows up both in attitudes and behaviors, both internal fruit that then produces external fruit in the life. And we could say, in a sense, if the goal of sanctification, when I use the word sanctification, I simply mean it's a theological word that speaks of the process that we go through of maturing in Christ or spiritual growth. All of those things mean the same thing. If the goal of that process is becoming Christ-like, then every single trait that's developed in us that reflects the character of Christ is indeed a type of fruit, right? Every Christ-like character that develops in us that doesn't naturally come from us is a type of fruit. It's a perceivable evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in us and we're growing and being sanctified. Jesus talked about this often. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, he talks about this quite often. In Matthew 3.8, he says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Matthew 7, verse 19, every, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. In chapter 12, verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Different illustrations, all talking about and coming at the same issue from different angles. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus looks and he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you. Appointed you to what? That you'd go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. In John chapter 15, that earlier in that same chapter, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says this. He says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not do what? It doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes. If we were to extend beyond the gospel, Psalm, we could go all the way back in the Old Testament and see this same theme, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 1 describes the righteous man, describes the godly man, describes the, the man who is blessed. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a what? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that does what? It yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. It's the same illustration from the psalmist. Paul writes in Romans chapter seven, verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to, to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. The goal of salvation, in a sense, Paul is arguing, is that we might bear fruit for God. In Colossians, he writes in chapter 3, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Listen, when a person, when a man or a woman repents of his sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trusts Christ alone for his salvation, there's a transformation that takes place in that particular moment. 
The Bible tells us in that moment, in that moment of repentance and faith, what happens is immediately sins are forgiven. A person is, is transformed He's given a new life. The biblical term for that, he's born again. That's how Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus. Sins forgiven, born again, given a new beginning. In that moment, his or her desires are redeemed. They don't want the things they wanted before. Now they just wanted to, previously they just wanted to please themselves. Now they want to please Christ out of gratitude and love. They want to obey him. They want to be with God's people. They want to read and hear God's word. Their desires are redeemed from the inside. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, indwells them at that moment and becomes an internal witness that convicts them of sin and draws them to confession and to repentance. No longer can they sin un, 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 sort of uh, unfiltered without any conviction or remorse. They can't continue in unbroken and broken patterns of sin with a clear conscience. They can no longer find pleasure in sinful lifestyles that, that just dishonor the Lord. And the result of all this is a life that begins to bear fruit for the glory of God which serves as evidence that all these things have taken place in the heart. The Bible describes spiritual fruit in a lot of different ways, and we could really do a whole sermon just on that issue of, of all the different things that are sort of fall into the category of fruit. I'll give you just a, an example this morning, or a few examples. The most obvious is Galatians chapter five, verses 19 and following, where that language is specifically used Paul writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, uh, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. That's a pretty, that's a pretty comprehensive like description, right, of the acts of the sinful nature. And that pretty much sums it up, right? That's what, it, that's what, it, that's what life looks like when you live outside of any care what God thinks. You just live in those things. That's what you do. This is a warn you as I did before that those who live like this won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. clear indication to the church is this. Look, this is what it looked like for you to live. This was the fruit of your life before you came to know Christ. But you have been redeemed. You have been regenerated. You have been justified. And you've been transformed in your heart. You are not the person you were before. You've been born again. And born again people, their lives begin to bear a different kind of fruit. You've been changed. You're not satisfied with immorality and impurity and debauchery and jealousy and rage and ambitions and factions and envy and drunkenness and orgies. Those are not the things that drive your heart and your passions and your desires anymore. Your life starts to begin to reflect things like love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The kinds of things that get built into the life of a person when they're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He, Peter identifies some other kinds of spiritual fruit. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Down in verse 10, I think it is, he says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall away. Peter is, 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 is saying the same thing that Paul was saying. He's just using other kinds of fruit, things like knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. These are other kinds of fruit that get built into the heart and built in the lives of people who've been redeemed by Christ, who've embraced the gospel and entrusted their lives to Jesus. These characteristics mark our lives. And he says, when these things begin to mark our lives, we can know that we will not be unfruitful and we will not fall. What other kind of fruit does the Bible identify as marking the lives of, of true Christians? Well, love for Christ is one. R.C. Sproul uh, writes in his book on assurance of faith, he says when people come to him and they tell him they're struggling with assurance of their faith, he asks them three questions. The first question is, do you love Jesus perfectly? How do you think most people answer that question? No, I do not love Jesus perfectly. Because if I love Jesus perfectly, I would obey Jesus perfectly. And I don't obey Jesus perfectly. So his second question he asked is this, do you love Jesus as much as you ought to? What do you think the answer is normally to that question? How would you answer that question? No, I don't. So the third question he asked is this, do you love Jesus at all? And he says, depending on how a person answers that question, he gets a good sense of whether or not they belong to Christ. Here's specifically what he says, quote, So if a person can answer yes when I ask whether he has an affection for Christ, even though he may not love Jesus as much as he ought to, or perfectly, that assures me the Spirit has done this transforming work in his soul. This is so because we do not have the power in our flesh to conjure up any true affection for Jesus Christ. So it's that fruit of love for Christ. And if we wanted to find a biblical anchor for his sentiments here, we could look to the Gospels and we could look at Jesus' restoration of Peter after his terrible failure and rejection of the Lord. You remember when Jesus encounters Peter and he says to Peter simply three questions. Peter, do you love me? And he asks, it's very similar to the way Sproul does. And the way he says it, do you love me? Like super duper love me. And Peter, it is failure and shame and disgrace. The answer is obviously no. And at the end of it, Peter's basically saying, yes, I love you, but my love isn't perfect. And Jesus says, that's good enough. Go feed my sheep. So love for Christ is one of those kinds of fruit that begins to bear out in the lives of those who truly um, know Christ. And there, there's also the love for the body of Christ, another kind of fruit that bears. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who, don't do, who does not love, what? Does not know God. Does not know God, because God is love. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. 
The Spirit of God indwells those who belong to Christ and he begins to bear out in their lives a love for other believers. And that becomes a fruit and evidence that they're the good soil. Another we could say is love for the word of God. Back to Psalm 1, right? We saw this in the psalm. The blessed man, the godly man, the man who is a righteous man is one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Man, that's a tongue twister. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night. Doesn't mean if you don't meditate on the law of God every night and every morning, you don't love him. That's not the point. The point is, the truly righteous man loves God's word. The truly righteous woman wants to know what God said. And she gives time and attention to his word. Unregenerate people don't care what God's word says. Unregenerate people are largely either hostile or apathetic to the word of God. They either hate it or they just simply ignore it and don't care about it. But when people are born again and their heart is the good soil, God births within them a love for the Bible, a desire to hear what God has to say, a desire to understand it, and a desire to follow it. And where that's present, it's evidence, it's fruit of good soil. We could identify more types of fruit. We could, we could talk about a desire to worship Jesus. We could talk about a desire to evangelize the lost. And we could go on and on and on. But for the sake of time, we'll stop with these that we've just mentioned. And you can, you can dig on your own for further. But in any case, none of us display any of these fruits perfectly and consistently. And that really, in fact, is not even the issue. The issue is, is there the presence of these things in increasing measure in our life over time? Very important note as we think about the implications of this parable, that this transformation, this fruit bearing of the life that's the good soil, it happens over time, not in an instant. We don't instantly become Christ-like. We don't instantly shed all of our sinful habits. We don't instantly lose all of those things in, 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 in Galatians 5.19, those, those habits of the sinful nature. We don't instantly display all of the fruit of the Spirit. What begins to happen is the process takes place over time where those previous lists begins to fade away and the latter list becomes more and more to bear in our life over time. And along that path of growth, there are seasons of, of fast growth and there are spiritual setbacks. We never are called to evaluate our faith and the nature of it in a particular acute moment and draw conclusions. We look for transformation over time. Wayne Grudem uh, developed a chart that I think is particularly helpful. I like pictures and they help me to see things a little more clearly. And so he gives us a chart that sort of is a pictorial way of understanding how this process plays out in our life. Uh, it looks sort of like a line graph. Did I not include it? There it is, yeah. Sort of like a line graph of our life where below the bottom line is when we're non-Christians, slaves to sin, but at the moment of conversion, something takes place. We, we go from being slaves to sin to becoming people who start growing in holiness. And then as our life plays out, sanctification or the, 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 the bearing of fruit begins to take place, but it's not a, a straight line upward toward Christ's likeness. It's a, a jagged line like that where sometimes we grow and bear fruit and other times we regress and we fall backwards. And there we could probably add to this chart some, some, some seasons where it just flatlines. Probably if you evaluate your own life 
you've been a believer for any length of time, you see all those pieces in your spiritual life. Times when you've grown and it's been very clear and obvious that the fruit of, of, of redemption is playing out in your life. And then other seasons where you just, where you've just cruised in neutral and you see no growth. And other times when you have setbacks, you backslide, that's the term I heard growing up, you regress. It's impossible in any point on that, on that line to clearly assess where we stand. But what we do is we look back over five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, what we should see is the general progression of the line is upward. And that's how we have evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is coming to life in us. We're not perfect. We never get it right all the time. But we're asking ourselves, do we see this transformation taking place over time? We're becoming more and more like Christ. Another implication is this. The transformation happens to different degrees in different people. Nobody's chart line looks the same as somebody else's. Matthew and Luke, I mentioned earlier, include this. They talk about some bearing fruit 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. The point is some true Christians are not as fruitful as other Christians, but every true Christian bears some fruit to some degree. It's pointless for me and it's pointless for you to compare ourselves to other Christians and the fruitfulness of their lives. That's pointless. It's only going to lead us to one of two things. It's going to lead us to pride because we think we're better or it's going to lead us to discouragement because we think we're worse, right? It's what happens every time you compare yourself to somebody else. We compare ourselves to Christ and we ask the question, do I see evidence that I am being transformed over time into his image? Do I see fruit today that wasn't there five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. The bottom line is a Christian life that doesn't bear fruit is not Christian. James says in James chapter two, verse 17, in very dramatic fashion, he says this, faith by itself, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead and it can't save. When we read James, and we don't have time to spend time in James chapter 2, but people read James chapter 2 in verses like 17, and there's an immediate objection that gets raised. But wait a minute. Paul says that salvation is by grace, and it's through faith, and it's not by works. How can James say that faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead and doesn't save? How can those two things both be true at one and the same time? I'm glad you asked that question. Because there is an answer for it. Paul and James are talking about two different things. Paul is speaking about justification. James is speaking about sanctification. And if you don't know those theological words, I've got a handy-dandy chart that shows you the difference between justification and sanctification. I think I have a handy-dandy chart that'll show you. Yeah, there it is. When we're talking about justification, we're talking about what happens at the moment that a person repents and turns to Christ and is converted. In that moment, justification happens. That is to say they're justified. It is a term that has uh, connotations of legal standing. In that moment, they are declared by God no longer guilty for their sin because their sin has been paid for by Christ. It happens once and for all in that moment. It's entirely God's work. It is perfect in that moment. And it's the same for every Christian. But something else happens in that moment. Sanctification begins. 
That's what we've been talking about in the parable of the soil. This sort of, this sort of internal condition, this change of our internal self that happens over time and is continuous throughout our life. It's not entirely the work of God. We, in fact, cooperate with it. And it's never perfected in this life. And it is indeed greater in some than in others. Paul is talking about salvation when it happens in the moment. James is talking about the outflow of salvation over time. A good illustration, and I don't remember who told me this, but it's always stuck with me because I remember pictures better than I do words. They told me this, if, there's two ways that you can know if somebody, if, you dry, if, you, if somebody who has a house with a fireplace, if they're burning a fire in the fireplace. There's two ways you can know. You can be inside their house when they strike the match and light the fire, and you can watch them light the fire in the fireplace, and you can say, ah, there's a fire in the fireplace. Or, subsequent to that, you can drive by in your car outside and you can look at the chimney and you can identify that there's smoke flowing out of the chimney and you can say with a high degree of certainty that there's a fire in that fireplace because every fire brings smoke. Paul, if you will, is the one who walks in the house and looks in the fireplace and watches the match strike and says, there's a fire. I saw it begin. James is the guy riding by in his car saying, I don't have to see that. All I have to do is look for smoke in the life. And if there's no smoke, there's no fire. They're talking about two different things or two different angles of the same thing. And therefore, we can say, in, in putting these passages together, that, that the two things are true. There is no person, or we could just say it this way, genuine Christians are not saved by their good works, but they are saved for good works. It's been often said that way. Our works do not contribute in any sense to our justification, but they do contribute to our sanctification. Despite what those in the modern hyper-grace movements teach, sanctification is indeed a process that, in which both God and men have a responsibility and a part. There's a sense in which sanctification is God's responsibility. We see that in passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse, verse 23, where, where Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May God sanctify you completely. If we read on in that passage, we'd see in particular that it's the Holy Spirit that produces that sanctification. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we, Paul writes, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through, what? Sanctification by whom? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. In Galatians 5, that we've already looked at twice, the idea is it's fruit of whom? It's fruit of the Spirit. The idea is that the Spirit plays a role in bringing forth that fruit. First Peter 1-2, Paul speaks of sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of holiness. And He is the one that leads us into truth and He produces in us holiness. Yet, at the same time that that's going on, we're not passive in that process. The Bible also says that you and I have a responsibility when it comes to our sanctification and our growth. We have a role, and it's real. It's not imaginary. Hebrews 12, 14, we have a clear instruction where the writer of Hebrews tells us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Who's to do that? Who's to strive for holiness? There's nobody else except the, the audience to whom they're speaking, 
it's you and it's me. Nobody strives for us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, excuse me, Peter writes, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with knowledge and self-control that we saw. Nobody makes every effort for us. We're responsible to make every effort to add these things in our life. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then we have passages like Colossians 3, 5, where we're told very clearly, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put those things to death. You actively put them to death. That's an imperative, a, a command, something that's meant to be obeyed and done. Now, what will happen is you'll find, uh, particularly those who are teachers who come out of the hyper-grace movement, but it, you'll, you'll find it sort of drifting into other teachers that are otherwise respectable in much of what they have to say. They'll, they'll come at these passages and they'll say something like this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But really, you can't put to death anything because you're really just a filthy sinner. And really, you don't have to worry about that because Christ has already put to death everything for you. All you need to do is look to Christ. And thereby they undercut the imperative of the text. And that's nonsense. When the Bible tells us to put something to death, it means that we're to put it to death. In Colossians 3, it tells us to put on holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. When the Bible tells me and you to put something on, it means we're to put it on. And all the other imperatives in the New Testament, just the same. So how do we bring that together? Well, we bring it together. Thankfully, we don't have to figure it out in our finite minds. Paul puts it together for us in Philippians chapter 2. Aren't you thankful for that? Because your mind's like mine. Like, how do I put all this together? Well, Paul does. Here, listen, 12, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation. What does that mean? It's the idea that the language actually says you're to work it out. You're to, to, you're to, it's to, to be worked out in your life. Not like work it out, figure it out, but work it out like you work out in a gym. You, you do it, you go do it. You go work out your salvation with sort of a holy reverence before God. But then he says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the Philippians here are called to work at sanctification. They're to work at that. And at the same time, God's working in them and empowering their progress. There's nobody who's doing the work for them. They are actually responsible for doing the work. But God is working in them at the same time, both the desire to do it and the ability to successfully do it. So at one and the same time, we're responsible and God does the work too. Apart from God, we wouldn't want to be holy. Apart from God, we wouldn't have the ability to be holy on our own. But as we work out our salvation, as we strive for holiness, as we make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, at the same time, God's at work in us, building up that desire to do those things and making our efforts productive. Endurance is quite similar to that. 
The parable tells us that the good soil is evidenced not only by fruit bearing, but by a faith that endures. That is, genuine saving faith endures. It, it doesn't wither. It isn't choked out. The Bible stresses this over and over and over again. Faith that, that sustains, when we talk about endurance, is a faith that sustains both external pressure and internal temptation. Those things come and they go, and sometimes we struggle, and sometimes we wrestle, and sometimes we regress, and sometimes we walk backwards, and sometimes we question like, like Francis Schaeffer did, and sometimes we have to deconstruct and go back and start over again. But at the end of the day, genuine saving faith endures. It comes back around. It comes back around. And again, just like with the fruit bearing, genuine believers ultimately endure because God keeps them to the end not because of their own ability to endure John chapter 10 verse 27 Jesus said this my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish and say this part with me no one will snatch them out of my hand Just let that land on you for a moment. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And nobody will snatch them out of my hand. That language is direct and concrete and clear. My ability to make it to the end of my life with my faith intact is not ultimately dependent upon my ability to hold on to God, but rather his ability to hold on to me. However, that does not mean I have no responsibility and am completely passive. I'm still called to actively endure in my faith. I'm, I'm still called to actively persevere when trials come. I have to continue in the faith. Nobody continues for me. When trouble comes and when persecution and trials come from the outside or when temptation comes from the inside, it's me. I have to refuse to give up, to refuse to walk away, refuse to abandon ship. And just as with sanctification and fruit bearing, God's the one who's ultimately driving the train. However, I'm not passive. I'm a real and an active participant, and so are you. There may be seasons when you and I, and there probably will be seasons when you and I regress in our faith, and it looks like we're abandoning it. What happens when, that, when true believers do that? What happens? Two things happen at least. One, God pursues them and brings them back. We'll get eventually, in the Gospels to the parable, the lost sheep. You remember Jesus telling a story? A shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. What does a shepherd do? And he leaves the 99 and he pursues that lost sheep until he does what? Until he finds them and does what? Brings them back. That's what happens when genuine believers, good soil people, when they, when they regress in their faith and they fall into patterns of sin and they run away from the Lord, what happens is the good shepherd comes after them and he finds them and he brings them back. It might take a month, it might take a week, it might take three years, but he brings them back. The other thing that happens in those moments is the good shepherd 
disciplines them and brings them back to repentance. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. You know what happens in your life and mine if we're true believers? When we regress and when we fall into patterns of sin and we, for a season, walk away from our faith? God just, he just, he reaches down to the stove of your life and mine and he just turns up the heat, doesn't he? He just lights the flame a little bit. And he brings some pain and he brings some trouble into our lives to get our attention. And the more stubborn and persistent our rebellion, the higher he has to turn up the stove to get our attention. Some of us are particularly stubborn. I mean you, not me. Mainly I mean you. I'm just kidding. We think of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah promptly gets in a boat and goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. And God says, okay, that's how you want it. You want it that way. We could do this the easy way or the hard way. You choose the hard way. So the Bible tells us that God hurls a storm at him. And then has him thrown overboard into the sea. And then brings an aquatic Uber along to pick him up and transport him where he belongs, right? The whole thing is a very unpleasant experience for the man. But God gets the man's attention and he gets him where he's supposed to be. Same with the prodigal son, same with you, and the same with me. We belong to Christ. We're the good soil. You cannot finally fall away from him. He will pursue you. And he will do what it takes to bring you back. And when he brings you back, you know, I'm his sheep. He came and got me. And I'm in the pen where I belong. Well, that's, our time is up. You say it was up 10 minutes ago, but I say it's up now. It was sort of a blast and a jet tour of some theological issues I hope that you were able to catch sort of the, the thrust of it. I mean, there's nothing more important than knowing whether or not we belong to the Lord Jesus. There's nothing more important in life than that. There's nothing more important than to know whether I belong to Christ and I am his and he is mine, to whether I've trusted my life to him. And this parable tells us that there's at least two ways that we can know. By looking at our faith and asking the question, over time, does my faith show evidence that it endures through trouble? Does my faith over time show evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit growing in Christ-likeness? If right this moment you can look at your faith and look back over history and see that progression, you can have confidence that you belong to Christ. You can have an assurance that you're his and he's yours. And that eternal life is your reward. The warning is for those who look at their lives and see none of that. And say, no, I'm pretty much just like I was 10 years ago when I started going to church. I'm just better at pretending on the outside. Or no, actually, when things get hard and when there's pressure, I just throw it all in the trash and walk away. I'll go back to what I did before. The warning is for you if that's you this morning. And if that is you, don't fool yourself into believing a lie. Repent right now and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be born again.
Give him your heart, your soul, your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. Your word is amazing. It challenges us. It encourages us. It helps us. It clarifies things for us. It cuts through the, the lies that we tell ourselves, the ways that we deceive ourselves into believing things that are not so. It cuts through our excuses. And it shines a light on the reality of who we are. And Lord, for those who've gathered in this place this morning, I hope that what they've seen this morning is a clear way to look at their faith. And as they look at it, what they see is evidence of good soil. And that they walk away this morning being encouraged because they see your work in their lives. It isn't perfect, but it's there. May not be like somebody else's, but it's there. In fact, they're here this morning. That's a sign of an enduring faith. They could be a thousand places this morning doing a thousand other things that most of their friends and neighbors are doing right now. But they're here. That says something. I pray that you'd encourage us and strengthen our faith. Help us to see that we're good soil and have confidence that we belong to you and that eternal life is our reward. Grant us internally by your spirit that assurance. Those who genuinely know you. But for that man or the woman this morning that doesn't see evidence of fruit in their life over time, that doesn't see a faith that endures through hard times, draw them, Lord Jesus, to yourself this morning. May they run to you, confess their sin, place their full trust in you to save them, not because of their good works, but because of your shed blood on the cross. that you might make them in these moments born again. We pray these things in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.